0: Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. This morning, we'll take a little turn away from our regular study in Acts. So before we do, I just want to pray. Father in heaven, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for saving us. I thank you for... Uh, our eternal security that grace converted us and that it is grace that will bring us all all the way to its consummation in your presence. Give you praise for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. As you see, like, I'm kind of doing a, a topical uh, teaching this morning. It's a, it's a topic, uh, but it will be uh, a biblical exposition of this topic. So it'll be a little different this morning. Tomorrow, um, people are going to go out and they're going to dress up in, in costumes and kids will be out getting candy and celebrating Halloween. And uh, we have certain convictions uh, on that. Some are convinced that to not participate at all. Some are convinced that it is a night when we can be light to the world as as the world comes and knocks on your door, and um, we can be light to them in a loving way. But one of the things that occurred on October 31st uh, in 1517 is that at the church at Wittenberg, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door. And it's a day in which the church marks the reformation of the church. And it is the mark of the Protestant movement. The church today should also mark itself by being formed and reformed by and according to the scriptures. So the reformation was not just one day. The reformation is every day we are being reformed, returning to form is what I like to describe it as, returning to the form that the scriptures uh, teach uh, us. So the church should mark itself by being formed and being uh, reformed uh, by and according to the scriptures. Even today we should take pause uh, to consider what what was advanced by the reformers. Uh, Robert Godfrey writes this, A reformation is not a museum to be visited occasionally upon a tour bus, but the church is to be reformed and always reforming. That is, that the church needs to examine its practices. Sometimes when we say that the church should be reformed, some people would say, yes, the church needs to be reformed. And what they mean by that is that the church should forever be compromising itself in order to meet the new needs of society, right? That as societal changes come, then then the church needs to... to to change its ways so that it can be more palatable to the world. But what the Reformers got at was, no, what needs to be reformed is to go back to the Scriptures and teach and understand in totality what the Scriptures say concerning these things. And that's what needs to be reformed and, and revisited, a return to form given to us by the dictates of Scripture. So, one of the questions people have is, what is Reformed theology? What is the theology of the Reformed? Well, Stephen Lawson succinctly states this, Reformed theology is really nothing more than a theology informed according to the biblical record. Uh, reformed theology is biblical theology. So today, we're going to consider one aspect that... Uh, that Martin Luther fought for, that, that the reformers that followed him uh, kept returning to, uh, for us to be reformed, and that is we're going to consider the assurance of our eternal security in Christ, that eternal security is brought to us according to the doctrine of grace. The doctrines of grace simply state that God in His grace does all of the work in salvation that is it is a monergistic work it is not a work that takes synergy that means that it doesn't take a synergistic work where god does his part and you do yours and therefore then you are saved salvation is a work of god from beginning to end it is a monergistic work it works from him and What we understand about this is that if it is God's work alone, salvation from beginning to end, the only thing that humans contribute to their salvation is the sin that made it necessary to be saved. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray again. Then we're going to read the text from Romans 5, uh, uh, verses 1 through 11. Then we'll make some observations and applications from uh, the text. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Uh, May your name be exalted among us this morning. We ask for grace to align our will with yours. Help us, Lord, to surrender to the good things that your will is accomplishing in in establishing your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. By grace, enlighten our minds to understanding, inflame our hearts to love, and move our will to obedient faith in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 5. I've entitled our our, our message this morning, Eternally Secure, chapter five, verses one through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. This is the P in the tulip. T-U-L-I-P is an acronym that is used to summarize Reformed theology or to summarize the doctrines of grace or in other words, to describe the monergistic work of God in salvation. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, what we see is that from conversion to consummation, salvation is God's work. It is grace that saved you, It is grace that is currently saving you. And it is God's gracious act that will bring you all the way into his eternal presence. Our text today is concerned with the P in the TULIP. But before we define the P in the TULIP, I want to unpack the summary of God's grace in the acronym T-U-L-I-P, TULIP. T, total depravity. This describes the total effect of sin upon a human. This could be reinstated as man's total inability. A person is infected with sin such that the whole person is damaged by sin, such that they have no remedy in themselves. An act of God's grace is needed to take them from death to life. Again, in Ephesians 2, There's a description of the total depravity, total inability of man in the beginning of that, that uh, chapter. And then in verse 4, there's a transi- transition. But God, who is rich in mercy, right? It is God's work in saving us and God's work alone, because we as humans are unable. The you in the tulip is unconditional. Election—that That is that God's grace is given to those he has chosen, not based on any foreseen merit, not based on any good works that have been performed by anyone. He hasn't looked down the tunnel of time and then seen that you would or might act in a certain way. It is God's good love. It's unconditional. There's no condition by which you, uh, that you in yourself can do or act in which you'll be saved. It is God's grace and His chosen mercy upon you that saves you. See, Romans 9, 11 says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, uh, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Verse 16 says it depends not on human will or exertion, but depends upon God who has mercy. As I said before, God has never looked down the tunnel of time and learned anything about the human condition. He's not looking down the tunnel of time and learning something about the human condition that would then merit him to give a person grace. But he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The L in tulip is limited atonement. Some people have trouble with this one, but this one is great grace and good news, friends. It is this, that Jesus' death actually accomplishes what God sent him to do. That the atoning death of Jesus on the cross does not make salvation possible. It actually secures it for God's chosen people. It actually does what God intended it to do. Jesus' atoning death doesn't merely make it possible, but for those whom God has chosen, it actually and particularly accomplishes salvation in them. As we uh, see in Acts, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe, it actually accomplishes salvation for us. The atoning death of Jesus accomplishes it. The I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace, otherwise known as the effectual call. The spirit who calls affects an actual transformation of whomsoever God chooses. The spirit is never, ever frustrated that one whom God would call would fail to repent and believe. The grace of God is irresistible to those whom he has called. That the spirit is never wringing his hand saying, oh my goodness, I wanted to save Mackenzie, but I just couldn't. She resisted. It's irresistible. It actually affects what God... That is good news that God is not impotent, friends. That is really good news. People sometimes don't like even that truth. That grace is irresistible that he somehow has invaded our will to save us. Yes, he did. I am so glad that he invades our will because our will is captured by sin. It is in bondage, enslaved. I'm so glad for the irresistible grace of God that God would take and destroy my free will because my free will was never free at all. My free will was enslaved to sin. And I'm so glad that God invaded me to save me, right? Nobody ever fails to come whom God has called to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because Ezekiel 36 says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It sounds like God's forcing himself on you, right? Are you opposed to that? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And now as we hear in our passage in Romans 5 is the P in the tulip. It is known as the uh, perseverance of the saints. Those who have been converted by grace will be hailed, held by grace and preserved. See, sometimes when we think about perseverance of of the saints, and you hear that right off, that you will persevere, that you will somehow, in your own strength, grab your bootstraps, and you will hang on with everything you have, in all of your fleshly strength, and you'll hold on to your salvation. God gave it to you, but you got to hang on to it. And you got to hang on to it tightly. No. The perseverance of the saints should rightly be saved, said the preservation of the saints. That it is God who preserves those whom he has called. That grace preserves them forever. That when you are converted and you are in the family of God, you're not just one day in the family of God and, you know, if I don't lose it, well, then if I lose it, then tomorrow I'm in the family of Satan. It doesn't work like that. When God saves you by grace, he saves you all the way. He preserves the saints all the way. He, he holds us by grace. He preserves us from our conception to its consummation. Since salvation is all of grace... And it is a monergistic work of God. It's not dependent on human performance to hold on to it. What a freeing thought, friends. I want you to be free in that thought, in that understanding. That's the biblical understanding of grace. Grace saved you. Grace is saving you. Grace will take you home. It is the work of God. We are not performers. For God, that somehow he would then give us more grace. God gives us grace and, he, and that grace preserves us. It takes us all the way home. It holds on to us. It's not dependent upon human performance to hold on to it. As John MacArthur says, if I could lose my salvation, I certainly would. If it was up to you to hang on to your faith, you would lose it. That's why, as we sang, author of salvation, not only is Jesus Christ the author of our faith, but he is the author and finisher, it says in the Scripture. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Performance is not the key. It has been preformed, right? It has been performed for us in Christ Jesus in his atoning death. Our certainty comes from the indicatives of the Scripture. What has God done in Christ Jesus? It's not the imperatives that if we perform, then God will do this. It's rather we will do what the imperatives of scripture instruct us because of what God graciously has supplied to us, will supply to us, and take us all the way home by grace. That's the P in the tulip. That we are preserved by grace. A monergistic work of God. So he begins, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uncertainty has been called the unintelligible expression without a straightforward description. We live our lives often in uncertainty, don't we? We think about things, will I lose my long-term job? as layoffs have begun where I work? If I do lose my job, how long will it be before I work again? Will the treatments prescribed by the doctor make me whole again? What does it look like if I don't? We often answer these questions with platitudes that are true, but they're not very helpful in the long run, because they're not coupled with a straightforward description. We might hear things like, where God guides, God provides. might be true, It's not all that helpful because we need certainty, don't we? Or Jesus is a great physician. While this is true, and it doesn't give the hearer any cause of certainty as to the outcome. But what we want to know is that the outcome of our faith is certain. The outcome of our faith is certain. If you have been converted, the outcome of your faith is certain oh man, what a motivating truth. It's what's been indicated. It's what's been given to you. The question before the Roman church seems seems to be, how can we be certain that we will remain among the saved at the end? Where's our assurance of salvation? Is it works done in righteousness that will bring us to our expected end? Or is our assurance that grace prevails among the chosen of God from conception of faith at conversion all the way to our glorification at the consummation of our faith? Our perseverance in the faith is actually God's grace. It is actually God's grace preserving the called from conception to consummation. The justified by grace will be glorified by grace. As you see here, it's about what you have. Verse 1, we have... Been justified by faith. That's a possession. I have been justified by God's grace. Past tense, I have it. It's a possession. I own it. I can't lose my justification. He justified me in Christ Jesus, right? He justified me. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spends Romans 5 through 8 assuring the church at Rome that it is not human performance that leads to the the saved to glory, but it is a work of God's grace. Listen how he kind of concludes the larger argument in chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that there's no work, there's no human work described in there. Is there? None there is just this fact those whom he predestined he called that it means salvation was eternal from the beginning that it was in eternity past that he chose those that he's going to save and he saved them from eternity past and then he called them in the present and those whom he called in the present are justified in the present and in the future and those whom he justified will be glorified they've been justified they will be glorified Paul desires the church to understand that our assurance rests upon God's grace and not upon performance or works. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Things that we possess, the indicatives, we have been justified. We have peace with God. The section begins, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been justified, we live in the certainty of our future glorification. Here's the certainty that, that, that faith assures us. Here comes an intelligible expression. It is a, free, a straightforward description. This justification finds its certainty in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Our justification is eternally justified. When Christ died on the cross for our sins... And we were justified in Him by faith, by God's grace, through faith. We were justified forever. Eternally justified. That's a certainty. As certain as Christ's death, atoning death justified us before God, according to grace, the atoning death of Christ preserves the believer too. Just as it saved us in converting us, it is that grace and the atoning death of Jesus Christ that preserves us all the way through our consummation into glory. We have peace with God. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace currently. The one who stands justified by faith will live, Paul says in Romans 1:17. The gospel uh, Paul declares without shame is the power of God to salvation. And here's how it is expressed in a straightforward description. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Through Him, we've obtained access by faith into His grace, and in His grace, we currently stand. The big question of this passage is how can we be certain that we are et- Our eternal position is secure. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us." How can we be certain? How can we be certain that our eternal position is secure? It is the indicatives that we see in this passage. It is what God has formed in us by grace through faith. It is in what we possess, not in how we perform, that secures the saints' continued salvation from conception to consummation. See, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peace with God is not a feeling. Peace with God is not a feeling, it's a fact. It's a position given to us by grace. It's a possession. The peace of God. See, we have peace with God. There's a difference. The peace of God is subjective. It's a feeling that we can possess. But here Paul is saying that we have an objective truth. That Christ's death secured peace with God. Eternally secure. Before our conversion, we were each at war with God. Upon conversion, by grace, through faith in Jesus' death, that Jesus' death is sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God in our warring heart. And what our warring heart deserved was His wrath. But Jesus' death was sufficient enough, even for just not just our justification temporarily, or temporarily, but eternally, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We possess this peace permanently and will never again be the enemy of God. See, when we've been reconciled to him as a friend by his death, if we say we can lose our salvation, then the death of Christ really has no power, does it? If we say that we can somehow fall out of God's grace, The cross has very limited power. We limit the power of God. The Christ actually secures salvation eternally, forever. Eternal life by grace, forever. And this is a work of God alone. One day we're we're not one day his friend and the next day his enemy because Jesus has given satisfaction for our sin and he's given satisfaction for it eternally. This is grace alone, not, not of works that anyone may boast. That we somehow have earned our peace with God. Jesus made peace with God on our behalf. Jesus made peace with God on our behalf by grace. Grace from God is eternally accessible in Jesus Christ. Again, the question, how can we be certain that our eternity is secure? We have access into this grace by which we stand through him. We have continued access to this grace as we stand in Jesus Christ. Again, that's the question in the end. That's the question when Jesus comes again. Who will be able to stand as those who stand in God's grace in Jesus Christ and stand in his atoning death? We now can rejoice in the certainty that we will one day fully experience the weightiness of God himself. Notice what he says. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Confident that since we are eternally secure, we will one day feel, sense, and be in the presence of the full weight of God's glory. One day we will... It won't be like a a shadow that passes by as it was to Moses. The glory just sort of passed him, right? It won't require a priest just one day a year to go on our behalf as it was for Israel. We hope not as the world hopes in ambiguity, but we have certainty in Christ. We have been born again, as Peter says, and as Peter describes it, to a living hope. We can now find joy in the midst of troubling circumstances because we know something. We know that suffering is not eternally destructive. Notice this. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. We know that suffering is not eternally destructive. The things that we experience in this life that stink, that we don't like, they're not eternally destructive. They're actually forming us. They produce something in us by God's grace. They don't destroy us produces character, which produces hope. This hope is not like the world's hope. It's a hope that is certain. And we live in the unashamed joy that the powerful gospel has wrought in us because God, the God that we believed, has filled us with his love, that when we were converted, he gave us his Holy Spirit as a comfort and a surety of the completeness of his saving grace in our lives. How can we be certain our eternity is secure? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 6. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can we be sure and certain that our eternity is secure? Because Christ's love is superior to ours. This describes a superior love, doesn't it? While we were helpless and ungodly sinners, Christ died for us. Not only were we weak, it was without possibility that we could even dig ourselves out. And that while we were enemies with God, he saved us. Not just without God, when we were opposed to the things of God that he died. We weren't just without him. We opposed him. When we were opposed to him, he died for us. That's a superior kind of love, isn't it? Because he uses this human analogy, doesn't he? Scarcely one would die for another. Maybe for a righteous man, someone might die. That's human love. That's a human description of maybe the possibility. But if somebody intentionally hated you and was against you, is it pretty easy for you to be sacrificial in love towards them? Humanly speaking, it's nearly impossible. Humanly speaking, you might die for your child. But would you even die for a neighbor for their sake? Truly, you might not. But God's love for us is superior. in that while we hated him, while we were opposed to him, Christ died for us. God's future grace towards us is demonstrated in his eternal love in choosing us. As Ephesians 1 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. See, we are certain that God's love will never depart from us in the future until the day that we are glorified, because His electing love was given to us in eternity past. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So from eternity's sake, in eternity past, he said, I love Jesse Wildman, and I am going to send my son to die for him. Because I love him. Why then would Jesse fret for the future love of God and the future grace of God? Because in eternity past, Christ, I was chosen in him. And I sent my son to die for him, to secure salvation for him forever, right? We can have confidence in our future because it has been an eternal love that God has chosen us. While we were dead, Christ died. Uh, while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. It's a love that is beyond human capacity, Paul demonstrates here when we look at verse 7. It's beyond human capacity. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. As we move ahead to verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by His the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Since we have been justified by His blood, see that's an indicative. It's a truth to hang on to, it's a fact. It's not an opinion. It is since we have been justified by His blood, possess that, we can be certain of our eternal salvation. The wrath of God which we deserved has been fully satisfied in Christ Jesus. How can we be certain that our eternity is secure? It is secure in a superior love. It is also reconciled through a superior atonement. See, access to God was granted and is continual. Unlike the access granted in the Levitical law, if you were a Gentile, you know, you could only come so far. You would come to a wall. If you were a Jew, male or female, you could go a little bit further. But you would then come to a wall and go no further. Jewish men could go further still than a woman. Priests further yet. But only the high priest and only on one day could he come into the presence of God. There's a superior atonement in Christ Jesus that brings us all the way from conception to consummation. In Christ, we were reconciled positionally while we're enemies of Him. We are reconciled currently by the life of Christ in us. We will be reconciled practically when we are in the presence of His glory. Christ is our confident certainty that we are eternally justified by grace through faith. We were reconciled by His death while we were enemies. His wrath was poured out upon Christ when we hated Him. While we were enemies, the atonement was once and for all. If we think we can lose our salvation, we don't think much of the death of Christ. Did it secure our salvation or not? Was it a once and for all atoning sacrifice for sin or not? The believer can have confidence that it was forever. Jesus said, I come to give you life, eternal life. That was forever. By faith, it was eternal Isaiah 53 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. You see, Christ was the penal substitution. That is, that in Him, in Himself, He received the punishment that we deserved. And now we stand by grace through faith. In Christ we have Peace with God. He has made peace with God on our behalf. We have been saved. We've been set free by grace from the penalty of sin. By the grace of God and the present work of Christ, we stand currently. It is saving us currently from the power of sin. The reconciliation to God is complete in that we will be saved eventually from the presence of sin, never to be in the, pre- I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for the day when it, sin is just not present. Whew, what a relief that will be, right? We now have received reconciliation with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We can be certain that this reconciliation is eternal because it is a work of God through a superior love, through an eternal love. We can be certain of our reconciliation to God because it was purchased by a superior sacrifice, a complete eternal atonement. We're going to be certain of our eternity because salvation is preserved in what God has done in Christ Jesus, what we possess. It is preserved forever. It is preserved by God, not in performance. It is all of grace. I think sometimes we don't understand grace. We understand grace to be like this thing where you get a pass for messing up. It's not that at all. Not really. Greece is not a pass for you to mess up. Greece is a gift of God. It is what holds us together. It is what gives us access to faith. It is what will preserve us all the way to the end. It's not about performance. It's not about performance at all. Because Christ performed it all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him Who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Who does the performing? Jesus. Jesus does the performing. And God in His gift gives us grace. We have peace with God. We have it. We have peace with God. Because of Jesus Christ, a superior, complete atonement. We can be certain of our salvation because it is God who delivered it to us by grace. It is God's grace that gives us access to it presently. And it is grace that preserves us to the end. And I can't wait till that day because it tells us this, that in that day when he takes us all the way there, our faith will be by sight. Faith will be my sight. And God does all the saving. I'm so thankful for that.